This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Today on the episode with us, we have Professor Justin Blessinger, English professor at uh, Dakota State University. Dakota State is, as many of you may know or may not know, one of its early presidents was a very influential man by the name of William H. H. Beadle. William Beadle was the third president of Dakota State University and had a massive impact across the American West regarding education policy uh, and is most known as a founder of uh, one of South Dakota's founders and territorial leaders and leaders for statehood. Professor Blessinger has recently begun work on an aspect of General Beadle that's uh, news to a lot of us, uh, and I'm wondering if um, Professor Blessinger, Justin, if you'd able to kind of state where you're starting out with uh, General Beadle's this line of research on him and uh, why you grew to be interested in, in him. Well, good morning, Ben. It's good to talk to you. Um, when did I first become interested in Beadle? That's a great question because if you uh, work on the campus here at Dakota State University, it's pretty hard to miss his presence. There's a large bronze statue um, in the center of campus of uh, General Beadle. And of course, that statue is one of three that exists. The others are in Pierre at uh, the state capitol and uh, in the National Statuary Hall in uh, our federal capital in DC. So um, we've, uh, we're, we're always sort of seeing him, whether um, when I became curious about his contributions, I suppose once I started seeing his bust, uh, there are still a few surviving busts of General Beadle, and they're in certain rooms. No one seemed to know a great deal about him when they had a bust in their <laughs> office. So I think that's when I first became curious about who was this person that was so important that uh, you know there's statuary and the uh, the occasional bust still around campus, and yet somehow uh, there are fewer people these days who can tell you a great deal about it. Now certainly there were people around who would uh, be able to tell you, oh, he was uh, a president of the university early on, or uh, he surveyed a great deal of the lands of Dakota Territory, uh, or even he had some influence on our Constitution. So you might pick up pieces like that, um, but uh, often you would hear he was a professor of history here uh, or right. something like that. And so um, it was very piecemeal at first, but once I started to appreciate the incredible variety of jobs <laughs> that uh, yeah. General Beadle had held. I think that's when I started to respect him in a new way and realized that we're dealing with a very complex uh, individual here. Right. And so that's when that's when my interest, I think, was first peaked. So quite a few years ago, but I uh, recently was asked by um, John Lauk to um, look at uh, the most important people of Lake County and suggest to him uh, someone for uh, a book that he's putting together about the Big Sioux River watershed mm. and the places and people of the Big Sioux River watershed. And, uh, well, it was a very short list uh, to my way of thinking, and Beatles seemed uh, to me to be uh, head and shoulders above really anyone else we might consider in terms of, of influence from Lake County. Right. And honestly, if you made a list of people uh, who uh, were influential in the state of South Dakota and in its history. I can't imagine but that he would be in everyone's top five if you're aware of our, our state history. Right. You know, the um, 
the statues that you mentioned, the one in um, Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., the statue in Pier and the statue on the campus, there's even a historical marker of where the statue was made. In Sioux Falls, right next to the Washington Pavilion, there's a historical marker on the um, west side of the building uh, noting no that idea. the statue was made at this uh, at this site. So certainly uh, in the early 20th century, there was a very fond memory of the meaning of uh, General Beadle's life. Indeed, children uh, across the state, school children, raised money to um, pay for the statue and the sculptor's fees as well. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they raised enough that they were able to offer him um, a pittance, really, but a, a sort of retirement fund, uh, because by then um, he was being moved to uh, Hot Springs, uh, to the sort of old soldier's home oh, right. um, out there. At, and and so he, uh, because there wasn't really a retirement program for teachers um, at the time, uh, this is about all the state was able to do, and it was funded by the children of the state, which is really both moving and also a little bit damning of our early retirement system. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so I was wondering, we mentioned the territorial politics, and this is probably the thing that he's most known for, is what what did he do when Dakota Territory was trying to get its act together constitutionally and drafting its constitution and so forth? What is it that he's most known for? Well, he's most known for his school lands provision within uh, the constitution of the state of South Dakota. Um, It's worth noting, however, that um, um, Doan Robinson, one of the uh, first historians of the state, um, said that Beadle, quote, wrote nearly all the codes in Dakota. So Mm. um, while he wasn't making massive changes to those, of course he was uh, trained in the legal profession. He was looking at existing codes and, um, you know, implementing those, and then uh, those were either adopted or not by the mm-hmm. legislature, the territorial and the state legislature eventually. But he, he wrote them, and that's remarkable in and of itself. But the school lands provision is something that he had somehow become aware of the habit in uh, territories that were settled earlier than Dakota Territory. And this habit was that the state or uh, territory or, or um, region was selling lands that had been designated for school use. Now, that in and of itself wasn't necessarily the problem, but they were being sold at a pittance, uh, mm-hmm. just a, uh, an extremely low price to land speculators um, who were buying up huge amounts of land um, on the cheap uh, with the intention of selling it for a much higher value later on. And so these uh, cash-strapped territories were often making a deal with the devil, giving up the very land that would fund their schools later on. So Beetle insisted on a provision that said we want an, a market value price mm-hmm. for school lands and then also to set a minimum price regardless of market value. Right, and I think... That, that... provision was copied by uh, five or six other states that were also uh, moving from territory to uh, state um, status. Right, it's... It... My understanding, North Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Washington, the state of Washington, um, Congress thought that was such a good idea, they asked the other states as they came in the Union to to uh, put it in their constitutions right. as well. Indeed. Uh, and so he helped, of course, not only our state by uh, you know insisting on that provision, but he mm-hmm. sort of set the bar 
for all future uh, territories and, and states and uh, and changed the way uh, school funding would be handled in, in the American West. Right. Um, another thing that's, that's interesting about him is he's a breveted general. So he, he carries that title general uh, as an honorary title for the rest of his life. Um, one doesn't just kind of get handed such an award as being breveted a brigadier general. Uh, I've done a little bit of checking into his Civil War service, uh, but you've you've done uh, quite a bit more. I'm wondering if there's any indication about what his activities were during the Civil War. So before he comes to Dakota Territory, how had he kind of made his name already? Yeah. Uh, he's an interesting character in so many ways, and uh, his Civil War service is, is no exception. He served throughout the entire war. Um, he wrote a brief piece about um, the time right before war broke out um, that was published in an alumni magazine for the University of Michigan where he attended. And uh, he actually had published in that magazine um, a couple of times for them about his memories of, uh, of having been a student at, this, at the time that, that war broke out. So What's, uh, there are many interesting things about that time, but you know the, the, the young men attending were quite eager to sign up, and they had to be, um, they had to be encouraged to finish out the semester, though that only meant uh, you know a few more weeks when, when war broke out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so they did, most of them did uh, honor their professors begging and, and finish out the semester. And especially in Beatles' case, that was important because it was, he was just about done with his degree at the time that, that war broke out. But he went uh, basically home at that point, which was Indiana from Michigan, and uh, joined the, the 31st Indiana uh, Company A, if, if memory serves. And um, he was the captain of the volunteers then. Okay. But the their their uh company well really the the whole uh 31st was hit by typhoid what they called something like camp fever mm-hmm. at the time and we're pretty sure that that was a form of typhoid and it was wiping out really decimating the um the soldiers on, on i'm sure on both sides but the union soldiers in particular we know about this not because of general beetle who wasn't much of a, a hand at, at keeping a diary but we know about this because his younger brother was serving in the 31st as well. And as was common at the time, you know, you might serve with other people from your immediate area. And uh, his younger brother kept a, a pretty faithful diary. And he mentioned how very few people were fit to fight mm-hmm. uh, as they approached the siege of, of Corinth, the campaign in, in West Tennessee. And uh, his brother, um, William Beadle, Captain Beadle at the time, was among those um, stricken with with the illness, and he was so ill that he had actually resigned his commission. Mm. But when the uh, fighting truly broke out, uh, he decided he was well enough to take up arms because there were almost no officers to be found. Oh. And so um, this was a sort of sort of first mark of his commitment uh-huh. uh, and 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 sense of duty and of course of heroism here as well right. Right? he's he's willing to rise from his sick bed right. because nobody else can do this right. and uh and and so he served uh in that campaign um faithfully and and uh, saw a great deal of, of 
conflict in, in West Tennessee. Um, but then he was assigned to the Michigan Sharpshooters, first as uh, just sort of recruiting and then um, as a leader of the regiment. And uh, okay. the Sharpshooters seem to have been assigned to many other um, uh, military uh, entities. So they were not always serving together, of course. You might assign several sharpshooters to uh, one infantry or another. Okay. And so it's difficult to track exactly where he was for a time there. Um, but ultimately, a long train ride back to D.C. without any heat whatsoever, and then the soldiers being asked to basically stay in the train once it arrives in D.C. with no heat and very few provisions, mm-hmm. uh, seemed to... to uh, provoke a case of pneumonia in Beatles. So this is probably yeah. eight, late 1863 or early 1864 when this happens. And so he's struck ill, deadly ill, uh, a second time uh-huh. and uh, was really preparing for the end. Very few people expected him to survive. He writes um, very tenderly of a nurse who cared for him and believed that he would make it. And uh, finally, his his fever breaks, and uh, but he was ill for many weeks um, wow. in D.C. So after that point, um, he was assigned to um, um, it's more of a um, a company that it's all veteran soldiers who are still wanting to serve, but uh, their health has been pretty severely affected in okay. some way by that point. So okay. they're in defense of D.C. is really the phrase yeah. uh, being used by that point. And he was able to accompany uh, President Lincoln on a number of occasions as President Lincoln moved about the city. So as a sort of personal guard, uh, he had conversations on occasion. Um, And again, we wish dearly that he had kept the diary and reflected on what those conversations were, but he would leave only a note that he had been able to walk across town with uh, President Lincoln this evening. So on a few occasions. And then, of course, on um, Lincoln's second inauguration, uh, Beetle was up on the dais with him, so within a few yards of uh, of the president. As a kind so of a some really neat opportunity. Augmented security detail. Yeah. Okay. Indeed, and he also was tasked with riding out to where the the defense lines were right. for DC at the time, and um, making sure that supplies were always in order and so on. So he had some more clerical kinds of duties as well. Okay. He, um, wrote a great deal in the area. Was, he was a sort of famously good at, at writing, which of course wasn't terribly unusual at the time, but for people to remark on it yeah. uh, does suggest that he was a particularly adept writer. And I'm sure that serves him well later when he's um, he, he and his small team are surveying the entire Dakota territory, right? That, that's right. no small area. No small area, um, that's right. So, right. Um, well, I had, I had read somewhere that uh, he was one of the pallbearers for President Lincoln as President Lincoln's body was... Yes, I believe that's the case. Transferred uh, back his to... His family him. owns... His family was given one of the silver stars that was attached to the, the dais upon which um, Lincoln's coffin sat when they mm. brought it around the nation. Okay. And one of those silver stars was given to the family, and at least at the time of the last biography, of which I'm aware, from the 1930s, um, he says, uh, low... Um, um, also famous to uh, to South Dakota, but Barrett Lowe uh, was his uh, final biographer uh-huh. of, of significance. And um, Barrett Barrett Lowe says that the family still had the star at that at that time. He had only a daughter with his wife, 
and uh, I believe she uh, lived in uh, San Francisco. Okay. The, the real focus of your, of your work, though, is kind of why the Civil War happened in the first place, and, and it's uh, having to do with abolition, the abolition of slavery, and Beatles' passion about the issue started not at the beginning of the Civil War, but prior to that. And you uh, have a line of research going on about uh, his participation in the Underground Railroad. I was wondering if you could share with us. Isn't that exciting? That. Um, yeah. It's, it was such a thrill to find this story. Uh, and again, because, because Beetle is so laconic, it's difficult to, to find places, even in his own autobiography, which is painfully short, yeah. uh, and which begins really only upon his arrival in Dakota Territory. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we don't get a great uh, amount of um, his own thoughts and uh, or or recounted conversations he's very much a, a sort of just the facts kind of a person in his writing and so he offers you know a great number of details of places that he went people with whom he spoke but not a lot of detail in conversations so it was really a surprise to find in that uh, alumni magazine publication that i i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um that he says that after he gave a speech uh, to the Alpha New Literary Society. Uh, that, so this is time. while he's a college uh, student? Yes. So he, he's yeah. actually a probationary student at the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> because in order to be admitted, yeah. uh, you needed both Greek and Latin. Uh-huh. And he was considered deficient in, in his Greek. And so he spent a year with his younger brother um, drilling in Greek for that first uh, year. Wow. And then uh, was received very well. He was considered at the top of his Greek class by the time that first uh, year was over. So he was a committed student uh, as well. But so he's still a probationary student when he's joined the Alpha Nu Literary Society, um, a group of, you know, readers and thinkers uh, in the area. Um, And he reflects on how while everyone was essentially a Whig uh, in their politics, uh, at least uh, for the area. That is, there's not a lot of pro-slavery people. Uh, people often forget that what, what the argument really was about at the time was um, containing slavery. Right. No one really wanted to go to war uh, over, over this issue. Well, I shouldn't say no one, right? Yeah, but, there were a few. You know, the majority of people yeah. were, not, were not looking forward. No one relished the idea of Absolutely. having to go to war over this, including the abolitionists themselves. No one relished this idea. Um, but the you know this idea that slavery could be contained uh, and 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 eventually stifled. If we could only keep it in the deep south, and then eventually you know tax it to death and 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 um, you know try and um, pass laws that restrict it further and further. Mm-hmm. Um, but he identifies himself as having been raised by, and this is his exact words, ultra anti-slavery mm-hmm. um, ancestors. And so while he's giving a speech to this Alpha New Literary Society, he's approached after this speech. And the speech is on uh, the Mexican-American War and uh, his insistence that this had, in fact, made things worse in terms of the abolitionist cause and had increased access to slavery. And so some abolitionists approached him after uh, his speech, abolitionists from the community, and they asked him if he would consider... Uh, going on a long ride, something sort of evasive like that. <laughs> and I think he understood immediately what, what, who they were and what they were asking. He was, 
He notes that he received permission from the president, President Tappan of the university at the time, who, if you check his own story and ancestor, I'm pretty sure was involved with the abolitionist cause as well. And at any rate, Beadle accepted and became a rider on the Underground Railroad in the Michigan area and in the areas immediately adjacent to Ann Arbor. Yeah. And uh, was delivering messages, I'm sure, about uh, the movement of those um, um, mercenaries hired to track runaway slaves okay. and about the movements of the slaves themselves. Uh, he mentions the specific Quaker areas uh, that he goes. He mentions a few specific names, but for the most part, he's still guarded, even though this is published probably 40 years after the uh, Civil War, or at least uh, 50, 40 years after the events that he's describing. Right. Um, he, he still is pretty tight-lipped on the names of specific people involved, unless, of course, they were sort of out as abolitionists in the area. If their names were well-known as abolitionists, he uses those names. I see. But he mentions just the A30 farmer, for example. <laughs> he delivered his message to a sturdy farmer. A sturdy farmer. Of Lenawee County. Right. Right. So that, that's, that's the fascinating sort of thing that he's doing. That uh, yeah. even afterward, I mean, of course, what they're doing at the time uh, is illegal, and so there is a sense of a kind of a a spy network going on that he is a, seems to be a part of. But then, even afterwards, forty years after the war, and the, and his side wins. That uh, he's got a kind of he he has some desire to keep people's name out of this. Um, why do you think that is? <clears throat> Well, I think uh, you've, you've, you've offered one really plausible explanation, and that is what he was describing having done was technically illegal. Well, was absolutely illegal at the time, mm -hmm. so illegal that uh, you know, people lost their, their farms over mm -hmm. the fines incurred. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a great deal of, of money involved if you were, uh, in terms of the fine if you were caught uh, assisting a fugitive, and that's that Fugitive Slave Act that we all read about in, in, in history class, right? Sure. This was illegal. Real, now, why 40 years later, when some people are by that point bragging about their involvement, even even uh, inventing their involvement? You know, mm -hmm. they know that history has shifted. There are people who are claiming to have had a much greater role, you know, by this point. So why is Beatles so so guarded? And, you know, there's a couple of different things. He was raised among the Quakers. It, it, it doesn't seem that he was a Quaker, um, but his family certainly had close associations with them. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, in Park County, Indiana, where he was raised, his, uh, the, the school teacher that he referred to um, most frequently as having had tremendous influence on him, uh, she was um, educated at the Quaker school, um, from his birthplace, it's probably 10 or 12 miles. Um, but from the farm that he left to go to university, that, uh, academy is probably only four miles. Okay. And, uh, one, one thing I just stumbled across last night was that, uh, I was able to find the, the section in which his family farm was located, the one that they relocated to that was closer to that academy. And it places his family farm on the line, uh, the Underground Railroad line, okay. between a place called Greencastle uh -huh. and Bloomingdale, Indiana. It's a very short stretch, uh -huh. uh, but it would have passed right right through um, the this area. So while that's hardly definitive that his family sure. was involved uh, in the Underground Railroad, 
to have referred to his own family as ultra anti-slavery and to have, as a probationary student, taken up with the Quakers really within weeks of arriving yeah. in, in uh, Michigan just suggests very strongly that this wasn't his first rodeo. Yeah. You know, that he had, in fact, had association with the Underground Railroad before. But, yeah, your question is really about his tight-lippedness. And, and, and I think that his association with the Quakers and their insistence on keeping promises. So if you would promise never to speak someone's name. Oh, sure. You know, I think for General Beadle, it would matter that 40 years later, even though those people might be celebrated, Mm-hmm. for their heroism by that point, mm-hmm. that he would feel that it's up to them to share that information and, and that he would have honored those promises. And that's why I think he does use certain names uh, in his accounting of of what happened uh, in terms of his participation in the Michigan area. Mm-hmm. But he also uses more vague terms um, and, and more locations about where he wrote and fewer names. Uh, but there are, you know, there's other possibilities Um as well, but I, I think those are the two most important: his Quaker association, his his own sense of of modesty and of of honesty about the promises that he's that he's made. Right. Um, I think, and that and that it was yes something that, that was illegal at the time. Right. Well, and how, I guess, in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, and he di- he dies in nineteen twenty eight, I believe, as as, as the twentieth century arrives. Um, what's the general sentiment? in the nation around um, African-Americans and minorities and so forth, former right. slaves. Uh, there's right. certainly kind of a, mo- a, a movement going on that uh, you, you talk about in, in some of your research, too, I've seen. And I'm, right. I'm so, hinting at the rise of the KKK, I guess. Right. And, and, and while it wouldn't have been known uh, by that term mm-hmm. in Beatles' lifetime, um, this the sort of foment that gives birth to mm-hmm. um, the Klan is afoot, mm-hmm. and there are sort of proto Klan organizations that that do form, um, you know, uh, prior to the twenties when the Klan really rises. So I'm thinking of organizations like the White League and the the Red Shirts. He would have been aware of those kinds of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, this foment was was pretty pronounced, and in fact. Despite the fact that there's so many Quakers in uh, Park County where, where Beetle was raised and who are uh, you know, definitely helping with the Underground Railroad, Terre Haute, which is only 20 miles south of – maybe 30 miles south of where Beetle was raised, um, is an absolute national hotbed of Klan activity by the 20s. Mm. So uh, – and, and, and Indiana itself, of course, saw a great deal of strife about this because – you know, being a border state, they're much more keenly aware of, of the uh, differences of opinion between neighbors. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and you know, to the point that some of them were trying to withdraw support from uh, the soldiers who had agreed to serve, of course, for the Union cause. Right. Right. Well, it's all, it's all fascinating. So I guess if you can draw an arc of his career uh, in a couple, three, four sentences, how would you describe him? Uh, if you go all the way to his, his being president of Dakota of what is now Dakota State University, well, you hate to overuse phrases um, like "forged in a crucible," mm-hmm. but if ever it were appropriate, um, you know, bo- our nation itself 
endured the, the crucible of the Civil War. And the kind of person who went into the Civil War was already impressive, willing to serve on the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. able to, to learn and master Greek in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, his younger brother, John, was said to be able to quote the entire New Testament from memory. Um, these are some intellectually gifted and some wholly decent and good uh, young Americans. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of person who, after the war, tries his hand at practicing law in both Indiana and in uh, Michigan, I think. Um, and then really just starts looking further west, as did a lot of um, Union soldiers at the time, as the Homesteading Act opened up the Dakota Territory. Uh, but it wasn't land that he was after. He wasn't homesteading. He was um, appointed surveyor of that territory. And I think that idea of being able to use his gifts, but also to be away from people was mm-hmm. extremely attractive to him. Mm-hmm. And so once he found that he was able to contribute in this new place uh, and that there were so many different I guess you might say job openings, right? There were right. so many needs <laughs> to the young territory sure. that he serves as a secretary to a governor. You know, he serves right. as a legislator for a single year. Um, you know, the the superintendent of education for the state and right. uh, public lands, as you as we've talked about before. Right. Um, ultimately, able to teach and preside as president over what would become Dakota State University. Um, I think he saw himself as the sort of person who contributes where he is with what he has, mm-hmm. right? So the kind of person that many years later Churchill is is inviting uh, to serve their country again. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of person that General Beadle was. And then I guess uh, this show is about change over time, which is kind of my formulation for history. Change over time equals history. Uh, almost... Nobody knows of him today. Um, Isn't that sad? What uh, What do you make of that, and and uh, why that might be? Well, indeed, um, Dr. Jones, I would uh, almost prefer to defer to you on <laughs> on a couple of points here, because uh, certainly history is not being taught um, at the elementary level or high school levels in the way it once was. And one of the casualties, one of the many casualties of a decreased curriculum and a decreased insistence on a rigorous curriculum in history is that we don't even know our own heroes. We don't even know that we have um, a person like General Beadle, you know, um, uh, upon whose shoulders we're standing. Uh, Even as I walk around uh, our campus, as I said, I knew pieces. And it wasn't until I had sort of gathered enough thread that I really started to appreciate the scale of his contribution to the state of South Dakota. Now, I think, you know, had he been um, uh, a, a chapter uh, of a text given to our young people today, I think they would have a much greater sense of pride in their own state and then of their own region and of its contributions. Uh, along the way, and of how many you know Union soldiers came out here to find peace mm-hmm. after uh, the war. You know, mm-hmm. we even have places like Gettysburg, uh, South Dakota, that were set up as um, sort of colonies for 
soldiers mm-hmm. to be able to live close to each other. Mm-hmm. They wanted away from the, the mass of, of men out east, mm-hmm. but they did find great solace in knowing that, that their brethren were still nearby. I think that's a neat part of the South Dakota history as well, and I think Beetle is part of, of that story, that if you came out here as, a, as an enlisted soldier looking for, to take advantage of that uh, Homestead Act, mm-hmm. you're going to take great comfort in knowing that General Beetle is involved at the territorial level and perhaps mm-hmm. at the university nearby where you've settled. Right, right. Well, uh, Justin, thanks a lot for the conversation today. This is certainly, I think, part of the the difficulty of why people don't know him as well as because, well, the difficulty you've confronted in trying to piece together his career, uh, particularly with the Civil War so forth, and the hesitancy, humility, and so forth that he exhibited later in life and not really writing a book. You know, today a, re- a retired general yeah. would, would get a book uh, published and it'd be everywhere and, and there would be that kind of first or second version of history. But uh, we don't have that It with doesn't him. help that the National Archives have been closed for so long now. Uh, True. So I wasn't able to access his service record yet. And the okay. uh, University of Michigan Library is still closed to outsiders uh, okay. as well. And so I really had hoped to be able to peruse the uh, minutes of the Alpha Nu Literary Society to see if there was any other abolitionist activity going on in our yeah, so-called yeah. literary society at the time. That'd be interesting to know, um, and that sort of thing. So there's much yet to be learned uh, about about Beetle, and uh, I look forward to being able to fill in any any gaps that that may yet exist. Well, yeah, there's a lot of gaps, and I certainly will uh, have you back on the show when you've when you've filled all those gaps. How about that? That sounds great, Ben. It's a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Thanks a lot, Justin. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov. And we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history.